0: Or call them today at 206-451-4220. GreatNorthernElectric.com. Serving our Bainbridge and Kitsap neighbors with solutions for anything electrical in your home. 206-842-3620. Eight four two seven four one zero, or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. Are you a service member thinking about buying or selling your home? Whether you're active duty, a veteran, or a family member, you need a real estate professional who understands the unique challenges of the military. A Navy veteran, certified military relocation professional, prior Blue Angel and CEO of the Repoint Real Estate Group at Keller Williams Realty Puget Sound, Scott Lever specializes in helping military families relocate to and from the Kitsap Peninsula. Call him today at 206-486-4891. Or visit online at repoint.com. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. I got something for your mind, body, and soul.
1: Here's your host with the most, Tiny Tim. So what are you going to do about helping us? Nothing, of course. Nothing, but I met your conditions. I talked trivially to you. Brown suits?
2: That was pitiful.
1: I'll try again. Uh, You're just no good at it. You don't have the need. I'll develop
2: the need. Maybe in time, but now it just makes you uncomfortable. Help us anyway.
1: (laughs) Why should I? For the sake of peace.
2: Whose peace? Peace where you dominate? Peace where we dominate? Peace we share.
1: Andre, you say that mankind has to fulfill every potential, that he's that kind of animal. But man has the potential to be a whole new kind of animal. He has other potentials more than just destruction. He has the potential to turn into something that, that hopes instead of fears, that agrees when it makes sense to agree, because life has become for him has finally at long last become a sacred thing.
2: <laughs> Only a child would believe this. I believe this. You will be forever young.
3: That was John Ellis and Joel Underwood with an excerpt from Indie Theater's newest production of A Walk in the Woods by Lee Blessing, John Ellis portraying Andrei Botvinnik, and Joel Underwood portraying John Honeyman, negotiators on the SALT Treaty of 1987 between Gorbachev and Reagan, representing the Soviet Union and the United States.
0: What's well, cracking, Podcastville? You found the bystander podcast. Today, my guests are from the indie theater. Tom, what's it like um, having this much talent in front of you?
3: <laughs> well, it's a pleasure, is what it is. Um, it's one of the things that indie theater likes to hang its hat on: uh, quality acting. Um, and uh, we've got a, a pair of uh, our our local best here, and and both gentlemen that many Bainbridge Island folks will will recognize from past productions as well.
0: Yeah, you gentlemen have worked in the BPA as well?
2: Yes, yeah, for a long time. I'm, I'm kind of most known probably for the Edge Improv, which I helped found 24 years ago. Or, 24 years ago? With, with whom? With, whom? Who with the Frank Buxton. Frank Buxton. Uh, yeah, Frank Buxton, and uh, Ken Ballinger was our first kind of uh, guy who... Picked up the curriculum and he brought in Ed Sampson, who was another local, Bainbridge guy at one point, and Matt Smith, the mm-hmm. the unbelievable Matt Smith, the improv god of the Seattle area. He was uh, he got us started and and we uh, have been here ever since, at various forms.
0: The Edge was something that I ran into the minute I I moved here about ten years ago. Oh, good. How many? T- performances do you think the edge has done since well, you
2: founded that well at the bpa we were just tallying it up the other day cuz we're going into our 25th season we've uh, done over 300 300- 300 shows. Wow.
3: (laughs) Everybody has a a favorite moment. Uh, I think uh, for me, it was one of Frank Buxton's donkey uh, appearances that were always a delight to see.
0: What what constitutes a donkey
3: appearance? I I think he was appearing in a Sancho Panza uh, skit. (laughs) And as I recall, it was uh, Chris Sotovia as uh, as Don Quixote riding. Riding Frank Buxton is yes. as good as it
2: could be yes Frank was it was written many a time and you know it's interesting I found out we have a connection here is that Frank Buxton was a Northwestern graduate in the acting program there and Joel Underwood
1: and that's yeah. oh wow yeah. yeah that's true look at that full circle that is mm-hmm. wild yeah that was the the Frank and, and Chris that was before my time but I would I would pay good green money to watch Chris Sotovia as, as Don Quixote. That would be
2: mm-hmm. awesome. I'm sure we can do it again. You just come to one of the shows, and you just when somebody says a character from of fiction, you just shout it out. Just yell it out. Yes, okay,
1: right. it'll happen. That'll happen. That's that, that's the glory of improv.
0: Let me get off topic here for a quick sec. Don Quixote hasn't that been a a movie that's had a really really hard time making it to the big well, screen.
2: Well, Terry Gilliam's most recent efforts,
1: you know, right. he yeah, uh, just, he Depp uh, was going to do it, wasn't he? Sorry. I thought it was Johnny Depp with Well, Johnny Depp
2: was going to play Sancho right. and and uh, uh, Jean Rochefort was playing and they filmed it and there's a great movie uh, about the making of the movie with that where the in that like the first week the entire set was flooded out by a rain in spain that never hits the plane (laughs) and um and then they were near a um a nato base and every time they started to shoot jets would go (laughs) screaming over so if you ever get a i can't remember exactly the name i'll come up with it but the 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 film is absolutely worth it i think it's on netflix or prime or whatever of of the making of that don Quixote. but now he's done it with adam driver who is in everything uh, as sancho and um and jonathan price who is perfect Oh, or wow Don Quixote, and it's it's he finally made it
3: That's a really important work uh in terms of the the history of literature. Mm. It's um given a lot of credit for the invention of the novel, yeah, yes, so in many ways it it doesn't work particularly well as a movie because he was really breaking such new ground um that I think it makes it difficult to transfer that story yeah. So
0: let's talk about what's coming up here um, April 18th and Mm -hmm. your new endeavor. I see you've branched out, Tom, to Seattle as well. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a two-person act, correct? That's it. It's a two-hander. Just us. Yep. Couldn't be better. Eye candy for everyone.
2: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, would, if you come to the naked production, I think Two-hander. that's a prequel, right?
1: My, yeah. my goodness, yeah. Wait a minute. This that one started. Terrible...
3: This one started um, in in just soliciting scripts from friends and relations and people on Bainbridge Island. Well, what's the play that that you love doing? Like, I think it started actually yeah. in a in a reading of Glen Glenn Ross and putting a piece of large post it on the wall and asking around what are, the, what are the great plays, great plays that we should all do and know about. And that was when Joel was, was I could see him cooking something in the background. And later on, he said, I, I have a play I think you should take a look at.
1: Well, all the adjectives that you were using in, in terms of, you know, this is the kind of thing we're looking for. We're looking for small cast. We're looking for intimate. We're looking for uh, timely and about social issues that, that, mm-hmm. and plays that have not necessarily just aged well, but still have something to say today. I think I told you one of the stories with, with one of the, the theater companies that I used to work with back in Chicago. Um, whenever somebody wanted to do a play and they brought everybody the script, we always put, used to put it to what we call the Hamlet test, which is if, we, if you assume just for the sake of argument that Hamlet is the greatest play ever written, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, just you know, fill in the play of your choice there. We could do Hamlet, or we could do this. Why should we do this play instead of Hamlet hmm. right now? And if the person who had brought it to us didn't have a good, concise answer for that, then we didn't do it. Why does this play, this script need to get done by these people right now with all the resources that we command, getting a space, getting some lights, getting the rights, everything like that? Why should we put all those considerable resources and all that mental energy and all the time and treasure and strain to doing this play right now?
3: And that is such an easy thing to answer for this play the first time we read it we had about 6 6 people in the room uh, and yeah. we yeah were, we
1: kept switching off and switching switching, and switching roles off roles yeah. with
3: every scene and listening to different people reading different roles and And there was a a really powerful reaction from everybody in the room. Um, One friend of ours who is a uh, lawyer for Starbucks Mm -hmm. uh, and engaged in uh, lease negotiations Mm -hmm. um, said that this particular play should actually be uh, standard fare for anybody in uh, negotiation school. He does it
2: internationally.
3: Yes, he he does. Yes, he does. And so for this play, there was a a really clear, deep-seated reaction to this core concept of how does one talk to your enemy? What makes an enemy? Um, You know, Hamlet, if we're going to dabble with Hamlet, let's stick there for a second. Hamlet's most profound insight, there is nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. It, it's the choice that we make, um, and we choose who our enemies are, and we choose who our friends are. Um, but sometimes those choices are made a little bit for us, uh, and by treating somebody the
1: opposite, we can often get what we want to achieve. And there's a sadness to it too. I mean, I, I you know, every time I turn around, and you know, you're doing one of your, your amazing arias or something, and I and I think about how timely this still is. It. it It makes you sad in a way that this play was written in 1988. And and we're sitting here in 2019 with, you know, our president just having – taking us out of the INF with, uh, you know, Putin doing what he's doing in Ukraine there. And so many of these speeches still ring like they could have been written yesterday. Yeah. And and that's very sad in a way. And in, in these 30, we should have, we should be farther down the road. We should, we should have yeah. have been better at addressing these. And yet here we still sit, you know, I'm reminded of that great quote, history may not repeat itself, but it certainly does rhyme. <laughs> and 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 here we are again. That. That's you right. know, here we are again, and and it's. It's great. It lets us do this very timely play that speaks to these issues, but it's kind of too bad.
2: Oh, it is too bad. There's one of those lines in the play that I have as, as Bodvinik. It's like, you know, we, we, we used to have to be rational in only English and Russian. Now we have to be rational in Hebrew, Hindi, and Afrikaner. And I, every time we get to the line, it says, and Korean, and <laughs> Urdu, and, you know, I want to add, and French, and, and Chinese. And, uh, you know, we did this play. The play was written in 1988. And we thought this perspective of nuclear proliferation was was uh, huge at the time, but it's nothing compared to what has gone on or what is going on today so Let,
0: let's talk a little bit about what's going on today and and how representing this play makes you feel in the political climate right now, like well let's just start hey, my button's bigger than your button mentality yeah um, this is something that was a distant fear. A long time ago, back when I, I was in college, mm-hmm. and this play came out. Now it's it seems even more fearful that the, there's a better chance of it happening.
2: Yeah, and I think we're we have we have uh, fatigue. I Hawaii alert, yeah, and the Hawaii alert and all this stuff. What you have that? a couple fatigue. more
3: of those. That's when they said the bombs are coming, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a public service warning. Yeah, it was in, a glitch right.
2: in the computer.
3: In Hawaii, every cell phone pinged with the bombs are coming, and it was upsetting to a number of people, to
2: say the least. Yeah, it ruined many vacations. Many people soiled the sand they were sitting. On. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Well, and and desks are just not as well made now no, I mean they're just not no. as well. I mean when, it, when our parents and our grandparents were hiding they were hiding under these really sturdy oak which I think could probably take a good nuclear blast <laughs> yeah. and they'd be okay so the drill you'd Thanks, be like Joel. well thank God I'm under this Thanks, desk Joel. and Joel, now
2: our parents and grandparents I was one of those people hiding under the <laughs> desk you were hiding desk. under the desk
1: and you're thinking at least I'm under <laughs> a sturdy American made public school desk yeah. American but, standard uh, printed and up and up. now these I mean look at these things they wouldn't stop a you yeah. know fallout. well we now,
2: didn't even I got a desks. low budget here. <laughs> yeah, we didn't do the desk. What we did yeah. at Mount Tabor Elementary in Portland is when the uh, when the uh, atomic attack. Siren went. There was a particular sound for it in the class, and we would all go out in the hallway, which was between all the classrooms, and we would all kneel down and put our heads down on the tile floor in front of our lockers. So we were in the interior corridor of the school, and we practiced this repeatedly. When I was a child, it certainly gave you uh, great comfort and joy, <laughs> you know, on a regular basis. Are so. we better
3: off ignoring it? What
2: do uh, you think? Uh, you now. You mean should we march the kids out?
3: No, no. I mean that we don't. We largely don't live in this. Our children didn't grow up with the same kind of fear of the bomb that, that we did. Those who remember Sputnik right. going over and and uh, all the anxiety that created. Mm-hmm. In some ways, you know, it's a little bit like the ostrich with the head in the sand. But yeah. there well, are some what I things mean that's better fatigue. not to think about yeah. it.
1: Well, right? but I think it's because of guys like this. I mean, that's that's the thing. The 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 great. I think heroism of these two characters and to a certain degree, the tragic heroism is like any soldier or anything. I mean, you look at at British soldiers in world war one, the the whole point is you had this generation of young men that went off Mm -hmm. and experienced all these horrible hellish things on a scale that humanity had, had not been able to even imagine yet. So that specifically, so that the people at home could stay innocent And and not just having a constant nervous breakdown. And I think diplomats like these two guys fall into that category very easily. I think most of us and I don't want to get too freaked out or cynical here, but most of us walk around with no idea on any given day, like how close we come, how often. I mean, how often do you think a flight of a flock of birds? almost gets mistaken for how often do you think that this plane almost gets mistaken on the radar for that plane. And we come really close to fingers just hovering Mm -hmm. over. I don't think most of us could function if we knew, but there are guys who their burden is. They have to know Mm -hmm. and they have to, and, and they have to function under that operating knowledge specifically. So what you're talking about. So the rest of us don't have to walk around all the time, because I think if we actually knew how often it comes, how close, we couldn't function as a society,
2: no probably not. yeah, and there's been so many calls where there's been technical glitches like the sure. the one in Russia where uh, there was an alarm that went to some of the missile silos to launch, and the the captain on duty was like, there's nothing going on, something's wrong. so his j- absolute responsibility in that seat was to go. And he didn't because he thought this makes no sense whatsoever. And it was. It was a glitch. But he he was sent the command to launch. Imagine the
3: the guts it takes to not push the yes. To not push it,
2: especially in that you know, in, in Russia where you know initiative is not a big thing we talk about. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so Joel brings me the play; we can circle back around. Yeah. Joel brings me the play, and we we do a read and and uh, with all that was going on at that time, knowing about Russia um, about eighteen months ago, I guess now um we I said yes let's do this play and so uh it it became a matter of where do we find an Andre Butvinnik? Where do we find someone, anyone who can pull off a russian uh, one of the the beautiful things about acting is when we're able to grab a role that's very much like us um and uh, it it it's easy. It's comfortable. We walk out on stage. We know this character, and it's all a breeze. Uh, what's fun about working with with really trained and experienced actors is their ability to completely sell you on somebody who isn't really like them at all. And uh, so uh, I started thinking about it with Joel and. Joel said, uh, I have somebody in mind, but I, I don't know what his name is. And I said, I said, well, well let me think. I, I'll write down who I have in mind, too. And, and then uh, Joel said, well, he, he's the guy who played Falstaff in Merry Wives of Windsor. And I laughed. Because I had the same name, John Ellis, written down uh, on the piece of paper in front of me because John had played a
1: Russian for me before. That's right. Oh, now this I don't know. No, what? Trotsky. Oh, that's right. You had right? done Trotsky in the yeah. David Ives. That's yes, right. And the, uh, eight-
3: Variations on the Death of Trotsky, right. uh, which is by David Ives. Ives. It's a brilliant piece. Yeah. Um, and, uh, John was, was masterful uh, in keeping the, I, uh, Ice it was, no, it was, a it was a mountain climbers, a, a mountain, mountain, cli- a mountain yeah, climbers. Act. John had a mountain climbers ax embedded in his skull for the entire performance. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's, it that's was method. Right yeah. There. Right there. So I knew, uh, I knew John had the Russian accent, uh, in his quiver. Uh, and so Joel and I reached out to John and I, John, I think it was one read to hook you. Was it pretty much uh, a page or two? How long? before?
2: Oh, I just, you know, the whole process, it was fun. And reading with Joel was such a delight. And, um, the play is just such a beautifully written piece. And the only, only qualms I had was it's two hands and I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to memorize this beast. And that was the only, it was like, it gave me pause, uh, and, and, uh, Otherwise, it was... Well, we read it, what, three times before? Maybe, we, yeah. Maybe. And I just loved it. Loved the play, loved the idea, loved working with Joel. And then you got the added attraction of bringing Ken Michaels in to direct yeah, it. And too. Let's talk a little too. bit
3: about Ken. He's had quite a run here on Bainbridge Island, done yeah. a lot of work at BPA. Mm-hmm. I worked with him first on a play called Noises Off mm-hmm. many, oh, wow. that's right. many years yeah. ago. Yeah. Uh, Ken has a, a remarkable ear for comedy. And it's very interesting about this play is that it, it really is – it deals with heavy stuff. Um, it's uh, – these these men are negotiating with people's lives at stake. Um, and, and yet, it can be quite funny. Oh, yeah. And it needs that humor. And that's what attracted us to bring Ken on board.
1: Well, I think the, the – the greatest part about this play is also its greatest danger, which is it's written with these just incredible – I find I'm, I'm using the adjective Sorkin-esque a lot. Mm-hmm. It's, it's got – these are characters who consistently they have on the tip of their tongue – uh, and, and just right there for themselves, the, all the things that you and I, people, mere mortals, wish we had said ten minutes yes. after the argument is yeah. over. Right. You know, they think of it in the moment, mm-hmm. and and it's just so smart and so uh, wonderfully verbal, and and these guys are just brilliant. But that is also a danger in that it, if you're not careful, it can really turn into. Uh, what what I jokingly call my dinner with Andrushka, just, <laughs> you know, two guys just sort of spouting philosophy and brilliance back and forth at each other, which is fun to do. I don't know that that would inherently be fun to watch for ninety minutes, and and you got to be careful of it turning into like a, as we've said in rehearsal a couple of times, a ninety minute TED talk, and so with the dangers of the play, we specifically I think needed uh, you and Matt figured out wisely uh, a director. Whose strengths were those weaknesses, which is somebody who knows funny, somebody who can mine the ore out of uh, uh, the funny, and also somebody who is about human relationships. Mm-hmm. Because people aren't going to sit and watch a 90-minute academic exercise. They will sit and watch a human relationship for 90 minutes.
2: And that's what this play really is grounded in is a relationship between these two men. Uh, it's, it's, it's how they evolve over the, over the two acts of the play.
0: Joel, you have a background in debate. How does debate translate to negotiation?
1: Well, there are two different things. Uh, there's, there's debate, there's negotiation, there's arguing, as I s- have spent the last 35 or so years uh, it behooves trying to teach my students. Um, and your children, your daughters. And my, uh, have. <laughs> my, and my 18-year-old, my 13-year-old. Um, it's all, the, the difference between the three is the level of listening. I often tell my students, you know, in argument, nobody's listening. Nobody's mm-hmm. coming to and, th- and that's, you know, something I think that's sorely lacking in both our modern political and our modern media landscape is, and in business right? and in business as well. Mm-hmm. When you and I both come to the table, but neither of us is actually going to listen to each other. In other words, it may feel like a debate, but if there was never any possibility that either of us was actually going to change our mind, that's not debate. And that's not negotiation. Mm-hmm. That's argument what a good negotiation is i think is where you're going to find something that works for both sides in fact i have that that line in the play no i want an honest agreement one that's fair to both sides if i come in saying i want everything that i want and i want to make sure you get nothing that you want that's not negotiation and and that's that's not you know that's not going to work it doesn't matter if you're trading sports players or trying to get a a fast food franchise or trying to draw down nuclear weapons you have to come at it from the beginning Idea that you're going to get as much of what you want as you can and i'm going to get as much of what i want as i can and yeah we're probably going to both go away a little disappointed but that the idea is that we are working for mutual betterment as opposed to I'm going to win and you're going to lose.
2: Yeah, it's true. I, I spent many years of my, my professional life was as a ship broker. So I was negotiating mm. cargoes and ships and putting them all together. And as a broker, that's all we did was try and find that place where everybody is a little bit sad about what they got, but they're okay. Because sweet, sweet you, spot, you, right? yeah, you got to find that sweet spot where everybody feels like they've got something, but nobody feels like they've c- completely been screwed. And um, that's – that's I think it's really hard face-to-face negotiations like what we're talking about in the play. These are people who have stakes in the game. These negotiators have stakes in the game. There isn't like an independent party in the middle trying to uh, kind of go back and forth. They, they are the ones. Well, I guess as the negotiators, they go back to their leaders. But they really have a lot of authority even – in those negotiations. So. And,
1: and yeah, and I, th- I think that what it so much of it talks about is is what are we going to, even to this day, as we talk about the United States coming out of the INF and all that, um, how are you going to define winning? Because if, as my character does at the very beginning, define winning as we're going to have fewer and fewer nuclear weapons because we're going to sign these agreements and then eventually we won't have any because we'll get the genie back in the bottle and it'll all be great. Then, of course, there's no winning. But if you define winning as there has yet to be a nuclear exchange on Earth that's between right. two countries. Okay, that's not the f- most fun way mm-hmm. to go about things, but there has yet to be a nuclear exchange. So, right. so maybe it's that. Maybe that's what winning looks like.
2: Yeah, I have this line in the play: says, you know, talks will go on for centuries if we are lucky." As, mm. as long so- as we're talking, that's where today it seems like such a failure with our current administration. They keep they keep shutting down. The talks—they keep shutting down the conversation. I mean, I, I just logically, why would you get out of a treaty? Why don't you take the treaty and start working with what you've—the foundation of what you got? Because you know the the treaties are twenty pages long with addendums going forever, and take that as a as a place to start and work from there that's more logical in business it's certainly more logical but to just shut down and walk away and then have to start all over it's just it doesn't make any sense it's not good business
0: how did lee blessing understand the conversation and then write the play how, how is he privy to what the conversation actually was imagination
3: yeah, I okay. mean his
1: his other great so. play that that uh, is does not performed very often is Down the Road, which is a piece about serial killers and are we actually making serial killers by making them famous? And I I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that Lee Blessing is probably not a convicted serial killer,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but <laughs> that that's that's the artist's ability is to is to invest himself in the skin of another and go okay number one how would those conversations go and number two I think just as importantly what is the human element how do we, how does that conversation help us draw closer as human beings one of the
3: beauties of this script is that there are almost no stage directions in it yeah.
1: not a lot at not all
3: it's almost like reading shakespeare mm-hmm. and uh, the the focus is where i think all playwrights should have the focus on the words coming out of the actors mouths often actors know best what to do with the bodies just tell me what to say Um, And I think he he has a knack for the rhythms of language. Joel, I think you're right. There are definitely moments where you you hear somebody say something, yeah, you can't think of that. That's that's been practiced ahead of time kind of thing. But there's also a a cadence and a rhythm that that seems very familiar to me when I've read the pieces out loud. Not all dialogue trips off the tongue especially well. Uh, Lee Blessings does. It just Mm -hmm. flows
0: I know you were really excited when I talked to you about a year ago about this. You had four or five plays in mind, but this is the one that you were really looking forward to. Oh yeah, Do you well, still feel that way?
3: Oh yeah, yeah. I tell you, I tell you what. What's the most interesting thing? When you're involved in a production, uh, you're going to see uh, the show a lot. If you're directing, you're going to see all the rehearsals. Most directors leave after the show opens, but um, as a producer, uh, I'll have the opportunity to see all the performances, and even though I love all the shows that we have done, I gotta say, somewhere along the line, I'll get a little distracted, and I'll do some work outside during one of the performances or another, but uh, I have the feeling that this is the kind of show that... Uh, when it comes time for Curtain, I'm going to plant myself in the back and I'm just going to listen to it over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. My wife uh, has been dragged to many Shakespeare plays. I, one of my favorite activities in the summer is a little Shakespeare outside. And so uh, she's gone to a lot of those shows and, and she's came came to appreciate over time that There's a real pleasure in seeing a single show over and over and over and over again. And we as actors know that intimately and experience that from um, going through a whole run of a play. Uh, For this play, I'm really looking forward to mining little things, even in the 12th or 14th or 15th time that I've seen the show, having a little moment where, hey, I didn't hear that one last time. So Wasn't a, a lot nice to on this play. Yeah. What a nice little touch that is.
1: Well, and there's going to be a lot, of just because I mean, if if the performances follow the rehearsals, how they've been going. I mean, and I don't mean this in 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 sort of a loosey goosey way. I mean, we've never really run the show the same exact way twice. I mean, no, that's the yet. the the cool thing about it is the there's kind of a. An algorithm here that the more people you have on stage, the more locked in it has to be. Oh, good one! Because yes, everybody's got to hit their mark. And, I mean, in Les Mis, you can't deviate. I mean, that flashpot is going to go off air, <laughs> and this is going to happen, and then and these ten gonna people are going to walk out, yeah. <laughs> right? So that you can do, and everybody's got to hit their exact mark every now with a with a little two person one like this, and especially when you have two people. I mean, John and I have gotten to the point where we we really trust each other, mm-hmm. and I know that you know if he goes somewhere i'm going to follow him and he knows if i go somewhere crazy he's going to follow me and and we've developed this real nice trust that okay you want to try this section a little different tonight let's do it let's let's try that let's go now obviously within reason i mean we're not suddenly going to turn it into one flew over the cuckoo's nest mm-hmm. but um there's a there's a wonderful intimacy and a wonderful um willingness to experiment that comes with just having two guys on stage who can just kind of go
2: yeah it's such a delight to be able to work it and and joel's i am just have absolute trust in any of the choices he makes and he feeds me so much uh and and we're using the stage and actually yesterday was the first time we were really using the space that we're in at the art museum and it just changed everything it was just gave us a whole different dimension to play because you know the space at the art museum is very uh, it's not very deep and it has you know, and we've been working at Freehold over in Seattle and up at the BPA Studio M. And so we've been rather loose about this. Well, we can walk over here and walk over here and mm-hmm. do the scenes. But all of a sudden, oh, it was just magic to be in that space and, and being able to have that intimacy. It created a, 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 even a more intimacy to it for the two of us.
1: Well, and what's going to be fascinating for, I think, like you were talking about, I, I think it would be really cool as, as an audience member to see it on the Bainbridge side. Mm-hmm. And then to come over mm-hmm. and see it on the Seattle side at Freehold because it's going to be two different plays different in many spaces. ways. Different. Those mm-hmm. radically different spaces that are going to different change audiences. how it how it works, and and so yeah, I've, I would I would very much like to to compare the two. Mm-hmm. I think one of the
3: wonderful things about acting with accomplished actors like these two gentlemen uh, is the. Ability to get closer and closer and closer to real time. So one of the things that actors battle is keeping track of where we are in the play and where we're going to need to be. And sometimes as actors, we're on stage with other actors and you're looking at them, talking to them, and you can see actually in their eye as they're thinking of the next line that they're going to say. And sometimes I, I, I want to just change what I'm going to say, just to see if you're listening to me. Um, and it's a wonderful feeling when you're looking in somebody else's eye and they are right with you in, in the real time. And what Joel was just talking about in terms of, and John was talking about in terms of playing and changing things, it's it's very exciting to have so much trust in, in somebody else that you're not worried about what I did last time. I'm worried about what I'm doing now. And the other person is completely there with you. They're open, they're accepting, they're listening in real time without thinking because when the play is good enough, The only word that you can say when the other person stops is the word that's written on the page. And Lee Blessing is that good. Mm -hmm. The the word that's there is the one you have to say.
0: So being a two-man play, that gives you opportunity to maybe pause in a section or not hit a mark and kind of continue to evolve your thought. Let's say you lost a line. I fancy it to like the comedian will take a pause and walk over to the stool, have the sip of water, look down at the stool. And then that, that one line that he had a hard time with was written down on that stool under the water. And then he can have a sip. God, he busted going. us
2: all our, he's, he's
3: going to full cedar wall
2: here. bottles of water on stage. And <laughs> I didn't mean to. No. Uh, you know, the thing I think Tim, what, happens in a show like this is thomas talking about you get it in your body the the words and the meaning and the intention is all there and when joel is saying a line to me it's a discovery because yes lee blessing gave me the next thing to say but i'm only saying it because what joel's telling me uh, what john honeyman's character is giving me it, it's a response to it's an honest response to what it is because blessing is so good that there's a few lines in the play that I'm still struggling with because I haven't quite figured it out, but 98% of what Lee has given me to say as Andrei Levervodz-Bodvenik is an honest response to to what what uh, Honeyman is giving me. It's not that I have to even think about it. I, I don't know how to explain it, but it's it's just this fundamental part of, of, of being, when you're in a part like this, and or any part where you're really in it, it's just in. It's all. Everything is here. It's you know. It's it's not just your brain. But your whole body is is sucking it up. I don't know if this make any sense. No, it's, yes, it's, it's, of course
1: it does. <laughs> we love it. Okay. And and there is also the other thing that's the the X factor in there is there's a third actor in this, which is the audience. Yes. You know every when we start bringing in audiences and they're gonna, you know they're gonna laugh in places we have no idea right. where things are funny yeah. or they're not gonna laugh in places where we were sure that was a killer. Mm-hmm. And and there's gonna be times during some of those big long arias. That you have where they're just going to go silent and be right there with you and you just need to like stretch it and and bringing in that that other. That other mm-hmm. influence, that audience is going to change everything. Mm-hmm. Yes, and and that's and that's again the great thing about it, just being you and me up there, is we have the freedom to then do that in a way that in Starlight Express they just don't. They have to keep skating, <laughs> and and so yeah, that's that's going to be really cool.
2: Oh, you didn't hear it, Tom? Uh, there's, see this roller skates in the corner there. He's yeah. he wants us to do it on skates.
0: Nice. Yeah, we're, we're going to do a promo video with you nice. on skates. Nice. Okay. Uh, Gene Kelly did it. Yeah. Hard part is one's the ice skate, the other's a roller skate. Uh, wow, Russian. I get the I get the ice skates. Very yeah. Russian. Like, <laughs> hey, so talking about stage direction, and I want to talk a little bit about politics and current um, day. It seemed when Donald Trump was debating, he had no stage direction. He was walking around, acting kind of in an intimidating fashion. Where the status quo was, hey, everybody sits at their chair and speaks in the is microphone. That the town hall one is that, the yeah, one? the one yeah. with
2: he he, he uh, kind of lumbered over and stood yeah. behind Hillary while she was talking. Yeah, yeah, he's broken every rule. Why should he not break that? It's amazing he didn't kick her in the ass. I mean, uh, he probably would now. Uh, yeah, we we get to look toward. Because I'm sure he's the Republicans' man in 2020. So we get to have debates.
0: But we need a stage director, right? So he sits down, (sighs) plays fair.
2: I I, I don't think, I think, uh, I, all be, all bets are off. Uh, Mr. Trump will do whatever he wants to do. And he, there is no one to tell him otherwise. Jesus. And his
1: people love that. I mean, yeah. that's the thing. If you look at, at the exit polling, when, when he won, the, the people by and large, when they came out and said, and they asked, excuse me, ma'am, can we ask who you voted for? Well, I voted for Donald Trump. And they asked them why. The two things you heard people say overwhelmingly was, number one, they said he's going to shake things up, quote, Mm -hmm. unquote, and we could do a whole podcast just on what that means. (laughs) And then the other thing they said was he tells it like it is. That's a direct quote. And what that really means, and we're, we're crazy if we ignore that, is there is a rhetorical structure that Americans had come to associate with the political ruling class. And he does not and did not and will not use that. Mm-hmm. He talks to them in a language that feels to them, and we can put this word in italics or bold or whatever because it means different things to different people. But real, and and that means not like al- the
3: real Donald Trump. That's and, and it,
1: and it yeah. means not you know having always the facts on the tip of your tongue and not saying everything exactly correctly all the time, and sometimes interjecting and not waiting for your opponent to finish. But they said, you know, he he tells it like it is, and that he he absolutely estimated that perfectly he talks to his audience where they live and and he's going to do it again and so what that begs the question is do you then run someone against him who also quote unquote tells it like it is and can play that game or do you go in a totally different way and say no i think there are better angels of our nature and i think there's something to be said for having your facts for having done your research for treating your opponents with respect it's a key Strategic decision that the Democrats are going to have to make, and I don't know that they've made it yet.
3: And oh, for they're... manipulating the language in such a way that uh, we, we can, uh, you know, just the, the form of the language and the way in which uh, the sentences are constructed, and uh, trying to parse a Donald uh, Donald Trump sentence can can be an, an exercise in futility. Mm-hmm. I, I think that uh, getting back to your original question, uh, Joel, I, I think you and I would both agree. Nothing would be better served than a real debate if there were real debates. Oh, there never real debates. With yeah. proper format yep. and with
1: rebuttals. Um, I, but see, I even using that word, it depends. We go out to the electorate and what what – a, a, a group of people college educated on Bainbridge Island thinks a real debate is Lincoln Douglas a former well even yeah, you know we're not the center versus uh, a, a group of of auto workers who no longer have a powerful union and have just lost their job in, in lower Wisconsin what they think a real debate is mm-hmm. are already two totally different okay. things good probably. point good point yeah um, well he's I, not a
2: debate he's not going to debate he's going to pontificate say what he wants to say I mean as long as Rupert Murdoch lets him mm-hmm. and and he's gonna just just uh, say say what he thinks because he is he is only talking to that base and out of that base there's leakage enough to get him reelected. Hope hopefully not. I mean just for the just just for the fact that you know talk about fatigue of. The, messaging. Yeah, the messaging. I'm just so tired of it. I I just want them gone.
0: Yeah, it seems like the news only reports on tweets now mm-hmm. instead of actually going out and doing the work. Yeah. I know the it's in, ha- The
3: entanglement with
0: them. Sorry. Oh, I want to get this out. <clears throat> nah, I lost my train of thought, Tom. <laughs> but it's tough being here on the West Coast in the Pacific Northwest where we see things a certain way and the rest of America – sees it differently. It's a fluent area. It's a great environment. Um, There's a lot of intelligent people here, not to say that all Trump supporters are not intelligent. But there's, you look at our state, even it's it's trying to divide to the Cascadia and become the 51st state. Mm -hmm. And it's like, we all might have the same opinion of what's going on. But the extended United States of America does not. And we look at how things were ran, like a a town hall, everybody was Mm -hmm. supposed to have their chair. Now he shook it up and he's going to tell it how it is, the real Donald Trump way. He seems to be getting completely annoyed with AOC being a freshman speaking up in the house and saying what she would like freely. So is that the type of person that he's going to go after and attack? Or is that the type of person that is needed to upset him.
2: Yeah, see, I, I don't think it matters. I think none of this matters. I think it's all nonsense because it's basically selling ad space It's the the newspapers love Donald Trump. Uh, If you're a liberal paper, you're a conservative paper, you're whatever. The media in general loves Donald Trump because he sells ad space. MSNBC is so popular, and I've never made so much money, and it's because of Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. It's not because, you know. I mean, Obama wasn't a great thing for ad space because everything was calm and there was this peace, but. Fox over there was building up this furor around around that whole thing. They're doing – they're the number one broadcast uh, news organization supposedly, but they're only going out to this group of people. The reason is that's all they watch. The rest mm-hmm. of us are listening to podcasts uh, like yours. We're uh, we're reading newspapers online. We're reading actual physical newspapers. We're watching a little bit of TV, but I don't know anybody who sits down and watches the six o'clock news anymore on NBC, ABC, Walter or CBS. Cronkite. Yes, yeah, Walter Cronkite. We don't have the clear vision of of great a spokesman who were completely unbiased. You know, Walter Cronkite was a great example. He his one of his eyebrows went up when he came back from Vietnam in 1968. Changed the country. Changed the country completely. Went away. Yeah. Checked out what happened in way. Yeah. And that was it uh 72 was it 72 no no it was it was 68, in 68 yeah. and
3: and uh, and I think it was Johnson who said my god if I've lost cronkite I've lost the country
2: exactly and we don't have that clear communication we, we you know it's like pushing a button to say uh, an attack is imminent if you, we can't do that anymore you can't go to the to the news and get one of three uh national uh, channels to spread the word to to do something It's so fragmented, the people. If you went out and said that uh, uh, some national emergency were going to say this and it went out on the airwaves, 40 percent of this country wouldn't believe it's happening because they are so disbelieving of anything that isn't coming to them in the pipeline that they have chosen. So we're all in these pipelines and it is it's going to be the thing that's going to kill us as a country because we don't have any we don't have this commonality anymore. There's no way for us to have this great it's communication. News. It's all biased news. It isn't but it's perceived by other sides as being biased. This is very biased. That's the this argument left, that right.
0: perpetuates more conversations, more ads, more sales, more.
1: Yeah. It's money. Baby. Well, we flipped the script is what is, I mean, once upon a time in the, in the Cronkite and creep pre Cronkite area that you're talking about, we, we, read the news, we, uh, and I'm sure I'm I'm thinking back to Halcyon days that maybe never actually existed, but we read the news, we educated ourselves, we found those issues. And then as Americans, we created opinions and those opinions then broke us up into our groups, into our tribes. I am pro-Nixon. I am anti-Nixon. I am pro-Vietnam. I am anti-Vietnam. Somewhere along the way, because cable news and 24-hour news cycle allowed us to do this, we flip-flopped that. We began to break into groups, and then those groups could give us the the information and give us the news, and they told us what to. And the way you can prove that is you can look at multiple different issues that have nothing to do with each other and yet are incredibly predictive of one another. You know, you look at something like uh, uh, abortion versus pro-choice and gun guns. control mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and and you go okay there's no way these two things should have anything to do with each other and yet they are incredibly statistically yep. predictive of each other yep. which means okay. we are breaking into groups First, And then the groups are disseminating the opinion to everyone else via their Fox News, their MSNBC, their whatever it is that you want. And the problem with that is that is a vicious cycle that will eventually with centrifugal force rip itself apart. We've seen it happen. If you're a student of history, you've seen it happen in the American Civil War. You've seen it. You're watching it happen right now in Brexit.
2: Yep. Yeah.
1: It's Russia.
3: It's Russia. Look what happened to Russia. That's exactly. Our history
1: book tells us that the
3: United States can't last. But every generation, uh, even of a dying nation, walks full speed into the wall. It's never going to be you Mm -hmm. that the country collapses on. Um, but you, you think about what the reaction was in December eighth, nineteen forty one Hawaii wasn't even a state, and the entire country mobilized. sure, whereas you know I, I this may be callous of me to say, but there are parts of the country that, if they got invaded, okay, you guys deal with that. I'm not sure I'm headed to that particular front line
2: where my father in New York City
3: never hesitated for a moment he walked in and signed up
2: yeah my dad was in the recruiting office on Monday trying trying to get it he was 36 years old but he was gonna damn well he's gonna fight yeah
0: I think we've lost some uh, trusted news sources too such as like Charlie Rose and um, you yeah, know Bill Cosby for one how much how many people thought of him as the American father yeah. Yeah. Right? I have any
2: jello in yours? yeah
0: <laughs> <And> that, <laughs> Yeah, me is great. Uh, Matt Lauer, that was another trusted guy in the morning on the news. And, and that's the problem is every time going.
1: every time that happens to one of those Harrison guys, Keeler. whether it's a Matt Lauer, whether it's a, a Charlie Rose, that just confirms the bias. Of that group of people that goes, see, I told you, you can't trust anything that comes out of the TV. So I know what I know. I know that all the medical research says that vaccines don't cause uh, autism, but you can't trust anything coming out of the TV. I know what I know.
0: Right? Who is Who is this NBC guy in the helicopter that faked the getting fired on? Oh, 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 uh, Brian Williams. Yeah, Brian Williams. He was one of the last young, good-looking, trusted. Okay, News anchors. so if you get you.
2: a chance, uh, speaking of podcasts, Malcolm Gladwell has this Revi- brilliant pe- – Re- um? Revolutionist history. Uh, yeah, revolution, uh, uh, revisionist history. Revisionist history. Yes. And he has a two-parter about – it, it talks about his situation of of remember oh, memory. I heard,
0: I heard that one. I heard that one. It's
2: brilliant, and it talks about this whole thing about what what happened and it in '91 over and over again, where people I think they were somewhere where they really weren't, and Williams. But was suffering from the same thing. He yeah. heard this story so many times. He put himself in the helicopter, even though he was a couple of helicopters back. He was there. He was nearby, but he wasn't in the helicopter that was shot at. It and it's all this growing, this yeah. memory. I, I have things that I know I did that I know I didn't. You know what I mean? I mean, it's we're all, <laughs> we're, know, all we're all embellishers. We're all embellishers. We tell that story at a cocktail party, and pretty soon, instead of telling the story about your friend, you're starting to tell that story about yourself.
1: So the question then becomes, that's one thing when you or I do it at a cocktail Mm -hmm. party. It's a totally different thing when, let's say, a newscaster on TV does it. And it is yet a different thing again when the president of the United States does it. I mean, it makes you – Apparently not. It it begs the – (laughs) well, but it begs the question. How much of what he says do you think – is there a big chunk of it that he – honestly actually believes he has he has created his own reality in his head and and it works for him and as long as it works for 33 to 36 mm-hmm. percent of the american populace that'll work for him it works yeah.
0: they say he uh says he misleads people 11 times a day on the average or something like that
1: somebody had done a, a stat on it well he's figured out the great formula which yeah. is you tell one lie you get caught you tell 17 lies we get tired
0: yeah. ah and that's you know. true He's
1: also an entertainer. I mean, it's, he is an entertainer. That's yeah. the key, and that's thing. that's the key, and that that is what the Democrats never figured out last time because they kept coming at him as a politician and and fought against him as a politician. Same thing with Reagan. And and as a politician, the great sin you can commit is to not be truthful and to not uh, and to not fulfill to your function wrong, to, to be, be wrong. Yeah, to, be to not to not do right. your job. But he's not, and he's never played by those rules. He's an entertainer, and what he knows the the primary sin you commit as an entertainer is to be boring Mm -hmm. and he has never been boring
3: but anytime anything starts to look at all bad stir the pot somehow Mm -hmm. Kofefe, baby (laughs) Kofefe, but (laughs) we've got the we've got firings right and left now there's a purge on
0: and there's people that don't even want jobs in his office can't give them away yeah who is worse gorbachev or putin or who is better
2: what do you mean yeah worse by ine- give me a, yeah. your opinion or?
0: on who did more international damage?
2: Well Gorbachev didn't do any damage I mean, well, he, he, was, he, he hurt the Russians well, there was a, some short-term
3: pain that went on with what he was doing
2: uh, yeah, but Gorbachev, the interesting thing about Gorbachev is I mean, all these things we're talking about here if if old Russia politic had remained in place, We wouldn't have had these treaties. Gorbachev was the one who really kind of opened the door to say, we're hemorrhaging rubles. We have to find a way to stop this uh, arms race. And financially, if you read David Remick's book, um, what was it about? Anyway, Lenin's Tomb. You you look at, uh, you know, he had to do something. For the for the security of the country financially, because they they were hemorrhaging trying to create this military might that they couldn't to keep up afford with us, to do. The yes, SDI. Yeah, we yeah. outspent them. The the SDI the Star mm-hmm. Wars thing uh, that Reagan came out with in eighty three was like them. it bankrupted them because they were trying to figure out a way to do something. And Reagan didn't care if it was real or not, and. It was a theory, and we spent billions of dollars pushing for this theory. and the And the and the uh, Gorbachev's Russia didn't have the ability to do that. So, in a certain respect, he didn't have a whole bunch of choice. He was trying to keep the country solvent, and people needed food instead of missiles. And there was a lot of that. So, I think. Uh, I would say Gorbachev could be you know uh, a hero of the world to a certain extent because but not he in was, russia, but not in Russia now, but he's still um he's still thought of by some you know yeah, I think yeah, it's yeah. I think it's like everything there's still some people who realize what he did for the country, but he did introduce the madness of Yeltsin and other things, but uh, that was. It's hard because Russia is such an authoritarian society and I have that line about make control your – Control your God. Make control your God. Channel the will of many people into one will. Only this will be effective. Only this will truly crush your neighbors because the country of Russia is just this flat-ass place. It's been invaded by – Yeah, and it's been been invaded by everybody and uh, so – it's it's a very different mindset. I think that's one of the key things of this play is that we have these Americans and and Russians have such different mindsets about their role in history. And Gorbachev recognized, uh, and rightly, that you know we can't keep continue to play this game and and succeed. I think if 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 they'd ever had a real election after putin's first election maybe the, something could have changed but uh, putin is putin is restoring the pride he's in a lot of
3: ways absolutely. doing for russia what donald trump has done for a large segment
2: of american restoring the uh, power of the church which is a huge thing he did it uh, very purposefully to to glue himself to the church which gave uh, Anybody who wasn't interested in his government was definitely in, uh, in interested in the church, and he made it co-equal. And at one point, one of the things – Remick's book, just one more thing, is that they're, they're, the Red Army was the biggest government body in Russia. They were the most powerful group in Russia. Then the church and then like the, you know, the Politburo. I mean they, these are the three, three legs of the stool of Russians' power. And he uh, – Yeltsin and Gorbachev allowed the church to wither, and well, Russia did. But he brought that stool back up and put it in there and put the put the top on it, and that's Putin's stool to control that that country. And even though they're financially a disaster right now, it's they're gonna they're gonna keep it going.
1: But that's what, one of the reasons your your question is so cogent. Is is I mean, you, they are inseparable. You you can't really talk about one without the other because Gorbachev, in many ways. Makes Putin possible. Yes, I mean, the, the, uh, Gorbachev is seen by Putin and his crew as the great betrayal, the great giveaway of all the land, of all the power, of all the everything. In and the way that Obama ha- allowed in,
3: for Trump, is I would, there an I analogy would almost, there?
1: I would almost go go even farther back and, and talk about kind of an FDR and a New Deal. Mm-hmm. You know, there there's a certain conservative element in this country that sees everything went wrong. And we've been trying to reclaim since then our our American masculinity that we gave away with the New Deal, you know. And and in the same way, Putin has decided. Look at what he's doing, you know. It's, it's you know he's he wants to be portrayed as a as a man of peace, and he absolutely is. He'd like a piece of Ukraine. He'd like a, a piece of Poland. He'd like a piece of Italy. He'd like a piece. And but that's what he is doing. He is is trying to undo the great betrayal of Gorbachev. Mm.
2: John, you gotta get going. I gotta go. I gotta catch a ferry. All right, go get I mean, him, man. Guys, great to talk to you, Tim. Great nice to, to meet you. you. And uh, I look forward to seeing you in the play. Yes, and and whatever they say is true, because <laughs> this is real news. <laughs> see you tomorrow, buddy. <laughs> All see right, you see soon, soon, John.
0: John's taking off out of Studio 15 right now. We thank him for his time. I, I think that in many ways, uh, one of the
3: wonderful things about this play is how clearly it elucidates. The differences between these two cultures and really makes us question, you know, there's especially with what's happening with the entanglement of the Trumps and the Russians and say, oh, we need to be friends. Isn't it better if we're friends and we can get along with them and things like that? No, no, it isn't. And when that first email arrived, hey, we have some dirt, as opposed to, I love it. Um, maybe the correct response might have been, "Hey, let's call the FBI because this isn't okay." Mm-hmm. Um, and the way in which uh, we think we can be friends with our enemies—it's a—it's uh, a wonderful fantasy. Perhaps, you know, that feeling, gee, if we could only just get along, uh things would be better. Um and I think one of the things this play really does touch upon is some fundamental differences. Would you agree with
1: that? I, I think that's that's totally true. I think it's it's interesting you know, John Steinbeck once said, I, I love all nations and hate all governments. Uh, the the question is, who are you talking about? When you say Russians, are you talking about the people in the Kremlin who want to reestablish uh, Central European domi- dominance? Or are you talking about the man on the street in St. Petersburg, who is probably not that different than the man on the street in St. Petersburg, Florida? It, it's it, the question is of this play. I think one of the, the big philosophical questions is, you know, there's so much us in them. So much us and them, and is there some way, and how would you even begin to get the us and the them down to you and me because that that becomes the secret uh, is is can we get it down to individual relationships and i don 't even know how supposedly the social media and the the, the information age makes that easier in some ways it has made it more difficult you know you look at we talked about hiding under desks at the beginning of this interview and you know our our parents and our grandparents fear was that the russians were going to shoot something over here that would blow us up that's a very different fear than is the person i'm talking to on my computer right now russian and i don't know are they are they messing with our voting machines? See, that's a very different fear than they're going to shoot something at me and blow me up. And and I don't know that we've quite decided how to deal with that in the 21st century yet.
3: I think Russians and Americans are similar in many ways, having traveled to three of the four corners of the earth. And that is that Americans and Russians, and I think people around the world will, will tell you, we're wonderful by ourselves. Mm. People like to be around russians and americans individually the more that you concentrate them in one place the less pleasant we are as visitors in other people's countries and i think that there's something about the nature of this play in that look at what two people can do if it's just two of them even if they're representing a large number of people
1: well it's like uh was it jt oh it just won the Tony for best drama, uh, Oslo. You know what's what's the, the the basic idea of that play is you're in the except it's the the Israeli and Palestinian talks. And what happened was while you know 30 people on this side and 30 people on that side were over in London saying all the same things over and over again and making no headway. You know the Norwegians went, what if we got two guys in a room, two, just two, one respected guy from this side, one, and we didn't even tell the rest of the world what was going on. Could we? get you know some some movement and of course it turns out they did and and it was flawed too as all these agreements are flawed but yeah it it gets very very difficult the more people you have in a room and the more people who the more stakeholders who come to the table and sometimes some of the greatest diplomatic work in world history has been done when you got two people who are capable of making decisions but could get the us and the them down to the you and the me
3: is that why marriages struggle sometimes with the addition of children, Joel?
1: What do you think? Ooh, now, oh, I, I, yikes. Yikes. That's a little scary. I've, I've been married for 25 years, and the reason is I I, I do what I'm told. <laughs> 25 for me. <laughs> Just crossed go. it. I'm yeah. signed up for 25 more. Yeah, Shout yeah. out to the beautiful wives. Oh, man. The, I, I got to say, and, and I'm sure Tom and, and John would agree, you don't take on a project like this. Uh, without a lot of help on the home front. I mean, there's a lot of, of missing of, of time on the other side of the water. For me, there is uh, just, you know, a lot of nights where I'm not home and, and you know, homework has to get helped with. and Your imagination all... is elsewhere. Sometimes, is, yeah. thinking about the play. Or... When you do get home, you're tired and stuff like that. So, yeah, no, I, I, any, anybody who gets up on stage is getting up on stage representing a group of people, and, well, and John and I are no different.
0: Joel, you you have a consulting business, you play music, Mm -hmm. you're an actor. How do you connect with your family?
1: Uh, You know what? I'm really lucky. That I have two daughters, one of whom, uh, loves to do what I love to do is, is a, a musician and, and we play out a lot, uh, with a here guy on, uh, here on Bainbridge sometimes we're, we're Paper Moon, uh, play with a, a guy I know, you know, Abraham Newell, who's a, a great percussionist. Shout um, out to Abe. Shout out to Abe. Yeah. Shout out to Paper Moon. Yeah. Look for me. I on Facebook. Well, I'm we're pa- Paper tunes.com. You can, okay. you can go there anytime. Um, and so, yeah, that that I'm lucky in terms of of having kids who like the same things that I like uh, in those ways. And I think you also have to, and and Tom is a ninja, at this as well. Um, when you do have, that time you got to make sure that you're not wasting it. Uh, you know, you you got to make sure that you're not. Uh, you know, every now and then when you're out at a restaurant, if you look around the table and everybody's on their phone, you got to call time out. You know, mm-hmm. it's 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 that sort of thing to to make sure because you know Tom's kids are older than mine. I, I you know you you turn around one day, snap your fingers, and you're on to the next stage. I mean, it's over, and you and you miss something.
3: I'd, I'd also just add into that your your kids want you to be happy and when they see mom or dad engaging in art a lot of this is about the art um and my respect for Joel is is largely are connected originally through the classroom um but a common belief in the power and the importance of art and i i know that every time i was doing a show and my kids would lose me for a month or two Overall, yes, I'm seeing you less, Dad, but I like the Dad I'm with more, even though there's less of it.
0: Fondness makes the heart grow f- No, what's the saying?
1: Absence makes the heart grow fonder. I, I don't know if I buy that, but I do buy that kids, the younger you are... uh the better and highly, more highly attuned your BS meter is, mm. and so when kids are around you and they can tell you're you're not happy and you're just you're pent up and and you just haven't like for instance for me, uh, one of my rules is I, I gotta play some music every day, even if it's just down in my basement, whether it's it's with my daughter or not. Uh, I got to because I notice when I don't. When I don't, I, I'm shorter. I'm more irritable. I'm more snappy. I I am just a less pleasant person to be around. It's just like working out. I know some people who feel that way about going to the gym. As you can tell, I am not one of those people. <laughs> but 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 uh, shout out to Mora Blackberry Shakes on the island. But um <laughs> uh uh but but it's the same sort of thing. You gotta have your your therapy. You got to have your, your workout. And, and your, I think one of your primary jobs, Tom might agree, um, is to help your kids find theirs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, what is their thing that, that if they don't do it every day, they, they get, you know, one of the things I've, I've always talked to my daughters about is, you know, you want to find that thing in life that nobody has to make you do. They have to make you stop doing it. They have to call you to come down to dinner. And, and when you have found that, man, you are a long way towards healthy.
3: And as parents, we need to model that. We need yeah. to to show what's exciting to us and what we get engaged in. And, and look at Dad standing up there doing Shakespeare. How about that? Um, that, uh, I think, really matters to kids and helps them sort of see themselves in the world yeah. uh, and how they can be artists or athletes or whatever they want to pursue.
0: I got to say, look at me. I'm hanging out with two wordsmiths. You know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> good company right there. Yeah. So, Tom... Let's get out of here. Tell okay. tell the people uh, how they can find you. The dates, the website, all the good stuff. Throw right. some promo out there.
3: So we have at Indie Theater, I N D as in dog, Indie Theater, T H E A R, T R E. No, I spelled that wrong. T H E A T R E Theater dot org. Indie Theater dot org. So uh, this play is coming up. It's called. A Walk in the Woods by Lee Blessing. Uh, It will be performed at the BEMA Auditorium, the Bainbridge Art Museum Auditorium, uh, at the corner of Winslow Way and 305. It opens on Thursday, April 18th. It shows her at 7 o'clock, and it will run for two weekends on Bainbridge Island with matinees on Saturday afternoon. And then it will uh, run for one additional weekend in Seattle at Freehold Theater on Maynard Street in the International District. Tickets... ...are not available because Indie Theatre does not sell tickets. We take reservations. As always, Indie Theatre performances are free to attend. We will solicit your donations, but it never costs anything to attend an Indie Theatre show. So, we hope we'll see you all there at either the Bima Auditorium or at the Freehold Theater on Maynard Street in Seattle. Thank you to John Ellis and Joel Underwood, our stars of the show, playing Andre Botvinnik and Johnny Honeyman. My name is Tom Chaloner, producer and co-director of Indie Theater.
0: You've been listening to the Bystander Podcast. Be kind.